field. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Hey, we get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're joined each week by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. These guests are expert in their respective areas, and through them we can separate fact from fiction and truth from falsehoods. I'm very excited about today's show. It's a show I've been thinking about for months. When I met our guest and he agreed to join us, I knew we would have a fantastic discussion. Today's topic is human intelligence collection operations by the U.S. intelligence community. Human intelligence is usually abbreviated as HUMINT, and our guest today is, without question, an expert in this field. David Sauer is a native of Faribault, Minnesota, and a graduate of Gus Davis Adolphus, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in chemistry. David also earned a Master of Arts degree in security policy studies from George Washington University. David began his government service with the State Department and then eventually shifted over to the Central Intelligence Agency, where he began his career as an intelligence or his intelligence career as a case officer. David's case officer career with CIA took him around the world and placed him in leadership positions in CIA throughout his service. We'll bring out some of David's background through our discussions today, and we'll separate fact from fiction as we discuss human intelligence or human operations. David Sauer, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, John. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Hey, I just want to give you a huge shout out for (laughs) the great show you have here. I mean, I I hope your listeners uh, appreciate the level of uh, guests that you're able to bring to the show, particularly, you know, in recent in the last recent shows, you had Admiral Studeman, the Indo-PACOM J2, and believe me, folks, he's a busy man <laughs> following the uh, Chinese and the North Koreans. And then having Dr. Michael Ulsterholm on, who uh, you told me, I mean, he's on almost every program oh, yeah. in the United States and a tremendously busy guy, and yet he's here talking with you about national security issues t- for today. So great job on finding all these excellent guests, excluding me, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, wonderful. One, what a wonderful program, and thank you for having me on today. I appreciate that, Dave. Hey, let's go ahead and get started. we got a lot to cover, sure. uh, lots of topics here. Uh, I want to start with your, uh, with your career path, right? Uh, and for today, let's just focus. I know you did some other stuff uh, in government work and whatnot, but let's just focus on your career path with CIA. Uh, what drew you to apply to the Central Intelligence Yeah, Agency? thanks. I, I mean, it was Tom, too many Tom Clancy novels when I was in college, you know, in the mid to late 80s. He was a very popular author, and he was writing all these great books. These, the techno thriller really had become a new kind of a genre in uh, espionage writing. And so that really drew me to CIA. And then, you know, I wanted to be a doctor and uh, much to my mother and father's chagrin, I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I ended up going to, uh, on a J-term trip, a January term trip for Gustavus and ended up going, it was uh, called uh, the Capitals of Eastern Europe. And so we went to uh, all the capitals, including Moscow, Warsaw, Prague, Budapest, and all those. And so that really awakened in me a curiosity to international events and foreign policy, although I'd always been interested in it. And then I I had uh, a a very good uh, professor at Gustavus. He was actually the registrar. 
And uh, his name is David Wickland, and he was a uh, he had uh, gotten a master's degree from Yale University in East Asian Studies, mm-hmm. and then had joined the agency. And it to me, it sounded like he was an analyst for a while, and he ended up leaving CIA uh, and likely over you know issues with CIA analysis or activities in the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and, and moved back to uh, St. Peter and became uh, a, a, an employee at Gustavus. But he was a great really great instructor and so that uh, fueled the desire a little bit more and then my senior year there was a CIA recruiter who came to Gustavus and uh, I talked to him and and John he really poo-pooed me I mean he just didn't think you know I I got good grades I was uh, uh you know thought I was halfway intelligent and uh he just didn't think I was the right fit and so that just really fueled the desire in me to further yeah. uh join the agency so after being persistent and uh applying a couple of times I, I was hired and uh you know I had a great career really enjoyed it and uh, yeah so that that's really how it all kind of unfolded. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about your career as we go through today, sure. if that's okay. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, and, and so training. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the training. Uh, for our listeners, uh, the CIA puts their case officers through a program at a place called The Farm. You've probably heard that in, uh, either in the news, uh, probably not as much in the news as maybe Hollywood movies and that kind of thing. Uh, but, but Dave, what, what can you tell us about training you received at the farm? Not, nothing classified, obviously, but maybe you can give us some sort of sense of the intensity of the training. Yeah, you know, I, I really can't say too much about the training, but I can tell you that, I mean, it's it's very intensive and it really uh, tries as best that can be done to capture what our officers will experience overseas uh, when the, but in a domestic environment. So there are limitations to the training. I, I will tell you that I, I've just, uh, uh, every time I went back to our training center after the, after the training was over, I got a huge pit in my stomach <laughs> and it, and it really, I mean, it, it's tough. And so you, you, in that physiological reaction to going back to the training center, it is to me really shows how hard it was. I know later in, later in my career, I had to take another uh, training program to go to a very uh, difficult uh, counterintelligence environment. And that, too, uh, was just uh, some of the hardest training I've ever been through. And they uh, it was the hardest training I've ever been through. And my uh, classmate and uh, good friend, uh, he was a, a former Marine Force recon officer, so a guy who had done all kinds of uh, just unbelievable training, and he too just sa- says that's the hardest training he's ever taken. And so, uh, you know, it's very intense. It really tries to prepare you for uh, your real world encounters. And uh, I think what would surprise your viewers is the amount of writing that uh, you oh, yeah. really have to do as part of the training. And yeah. that, that uh, I, I don't think. People quite, they've seen all the Hollywood movies or maybe written books or read books about uh, espionage, but they just don't know how much documentation and how much the officer in charge of a case or an agent has to write to yeah. document their, their interactions with that, with right. that agent. Right. So, so you, you know that you know, we share this background together. Right. Uh, so we have this similar experience having gone through that same training yep. program. Yeah, we still have that same pit in the stomach <laughs> That's right. That's if right. we get close to that facility. Yep. 
I, I would say that uh, you know I had forgotten about the, that that writing piece, uh, and I can share with our audience. Uh, uh, typically, we would write 15 to 20 pages every night right. uh, as part of our process of having done our training during the day, write those pages at night, and they would lock up the facility <laughs> at midnight. And so, you had to get out, and right. there was no other place to do your writing. <laughs> so right. there, was a, there was that time pressure added to you. That's right. And, and, and they would give you more than you could accomplish in the time allotted to see how well you handled failure. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. I mean, there is that psychological aspect, too. That's part of the training. Yeah. And that time pressure, that that's really a part of the more advanced training that I took. And oh, yeah. Really, uh, people who did poorly in that really did so because they, I, I, we were talking about before the show, la- they lacked sleep. Yeah. And uh, they, were, they weren't able to make good judgments because of that lack of sleep. So. Yeah, anyway. and, and we talked at, at, before the show. Uh, I think a lot of the military training that's out there. You were talking about the Force Recon, Marine Force Recon uh, classmate of yours. Uh, that's designed to challenge you physically uh, and to wear you down. Uh, and what happens, I think, when when we're talking about this kind of training at a place like the farm, uh, it's almost constant psychological pressure that's on you to perform, as well as an element of the physical uh, challenge because of the, the pace that you have to set to, to manage all of those operations and to deliver on all of your reporting that you have to do. So, yeah, it's a, it's an intensive process yep. and, uh, yep. it, it needs to be, yeah, I mean, it does. you need to be, have those, <laughs> you know, uh, highly capable people yeah. that are able to adapt, uh, to uh, accomplish the mission of a CIA case officer overseas. Yeah. And so, so this, this discussion that we're having right now, uh, just for our, our listeners, I want to follow up on that and why it's so intense as we get into yeah, some sure. of the discussions, more advanced uh, operational discussions. Uh, so, David, what, what what is the difference between a case officer and a spy? You know, when the people <laughs> call me a spy when they hear where I used to work, I really cringe. Yeah, me too. And it really just kind of uh, just kind of raises the hackles in my in my. Uh, it just 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 makes me uncomfortable. So, you know, it, I I thought I would just read something from uh, the you know a definition i found for a spy and you know uh, uh, the definition presented is a spy is a person who secretly collects and reports information on the activities movements and plans of an enemy or a competitor the sup- the spy reports to an intelligence officer or in the U.S. lexicon, a case officer or an operations officer. Mm-hmm. A case officer is really trained to recruit new spies and to run espionage operations or to meet and handle spies. Right. Yep. So when you hear this uh, audience, uh, either in the news when they refer to spies or if uh, you see something on TV or in a movie, spies are the people that case officers recruit. Just keep that in mind, uh, and and that'll that'll keep you clear on the terminology going forward. Yeah, that's a much simpler explanation. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay. And uh, and David, you you have a you've ha- you had a great career at CIA's Senior Intelligence Service uh, Executive. Can you give us just maybe a quick rundown on, on some of the postings assignments you had at, at CIA? Yeah. N- nothing classified. Well, I'll talk more broadly about my federal career. I spent about 18 years overseas, and my first assignment was in the Philippines, and then I served in Taiwan, China, Japan, um, Cambodia, uh, Pakistan, and then finally in uh, Taipei, Taiwan, which is uh, a fabulous place. I encourage all your listeners to visit Taiwan. It's uh, 
Uh, I mean, the food is unbelievable and the Taiwan people are so, so wonderful and welcoming to visitors. So it sounds like you had a sort of a specialty on the Asia front. Yeah, most of my career was spent in East Asia. And, you know, for me, what has been very interesting to kind of observe and reflect upon is the just the massive growth in China's power and military mm-hmm. power, economic power. And, you know, in 1992, the Philippines decided that they no longer wanted to host uh, U.S. military facilities in Subic Bay and, yeah, and in Clark. And uh, I, I served in the Philippines from 94 to 96. And as soon as we cleared Subic, the Chinese started putting their navigational markers right. on Mischief Reef and yeah. in the Spratly Islands. Right. So they started that push. And just as their power has grown, they've become much more assertive mm-hmm. in um, trying to get their way with their neighbors. And yeah. so it's been really kind of remarkable to watch that growth in power. Uh, I, I vividly remember in, uh, I think it was around 2011, in the spring of 2011, I was in Japan and we had a senior agency officer out to visit and we were talking, he and I were talking outside of the facility and he, I just said to him, you know, like, hey, sir, you know, we might just really need to do more about China. And he he, he heard me out and he said, yes, China is a, a long-term strategic competitor of the United States, but, you know, right now we have more immediate needs to fill. And, you know, he, he was right. I mean, you have CT operations that are taking place. You have yeah. Counterterrorism. US, counterterrorism. Yeah, yeah. yeah, counterterrorism operations taking place. You have U.S. military forces deployed abroad. So that's where the focus of our intelligence organizations needs to be. Mm-hmm. But... I mean, in hindsight, you can see that development of China's power. And now we're really facing a 10,000-pound gorilla, essentially. I mean, a very powerful uh, competitor that we're going to have to deal with in this century. Yeah, that's true. Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is David Sauer, and we're discussing intelligence collection operations through human sources, which is usually referred to as HUMINT. Okay, Dave, uh, now that we've gotten some of the foundations covered, maybe we can uh, move into some higher-level discussions about intelligence collection operations. Uh, What is different about human intelligence or or HUMINT collection operations from, say, imagery, signals, or other forms of collection? Well, I mean, the very fundamental difference is you're you're dealing with a human being, and you, you're you're having to deal with all the the personality, <laughs> um, just all the the great things about people and the bad things about people. And in in as an officer, you're trying to extract information of value from that person and you know they may not know what's a value and you have to train them so that i mean that's a fundamental difference you're dealing directly with human beings mm-hmm. with uh, imagery or sigint you're i mean that's generally very large platforms that are being used to collect information which are i mean just enormously costly think of launching an imagery satellite into space how many thousands of people work on that and the cost of the equipment to 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 uh, get that satellite into orbit Uh, you know as far as human is concerned you also have to consider and maybe we'll talk about this later 
you know, you're you're putting that officer, you're more importantly, you're putting that agent at risk every time you're having an interaction right. with him. You know, he's he's potentially if he's a good agent. I mean, what I mean is he's not working for his local service and being doubled against you. Yeah. He's putting his life on the line right. to provide this information to you. So you really, that, that case officer or operations officer who's going out to see that person really has a strong moral obligation to that agent to protect them and to ensure that that agent is safe and sound. Yeah. Yep, They're most uh, really one of the most precious resources that the United States has is right. our agent base. So, so let, let's let's dry, drill down a little bit more into this collection piece, uh, and, then, and then I would like to talk a little bit about kind of what drives somebody to say yes uh, when we yeah. make a recruitment pitch yep. and some of the responsibilities we have in running those operations. Uh, so, as intelligence collection operations go, uh, we know that. And you just mentioned imagery and SIGINT, signals intelligence, and some of the other me- measurements and signers, signatures Mass intelligence. Int, yeah, yeah. MASINT, a bunch of other things that are out there. Those are very high-end technical collection yeah. capabilities that we have kind of in abundance in the U.S. intelligence community, but we still don't have enough. <laughs> no, <laughs> we certainly we have. don't have enough. Yeah. So uh, why why would we, if we spend all this money on these technical collection capabilities, why do we also spend money on humans? Why is human so critical? In the collection well, process, you know, human is designed to be the kind of the collection of last resort. You know, there's a ton of information available via open source on the internet, via newspapers, via periodicals. So, I mean, a lot of information is collected via open source means. And, and some would say 80 to 85 percent of the information that's out there is available in open source. So, yeah, and I so, would agree with that assessment. And yeah. then, so human is really trying to collect that 5 percent that isn't readily available. And it really, or human is different from like imint or imagery and imagery, satellite imagery or SIGINT. It, it, it really gives the human dimension it's able to give you the maybe the strategic intentions of a government mm-hmm. uh for i mean the north korean government the iranian government if you have an agent that is well placed enough to be able to report on that so that i mean i think that's the critical difference and another difference is imminent and SIGINT generally are not going to be able to tell you about the intelligence efforts of a foreign adversary. Right. Right. I mean, so the the Russians have had remarkable success recruiting Americans over the past century. And so uh, we're not going to generally find out about those activities. Uh, SIGINT can certainly help if you're able to break their codes, which was done with the Venona decrypts, which we can talk about another time. Sure. But uh, that uh, uh, human, if you're able to get a penetration of a foreign intelligence service, they can tell you all kinds of stuff of what that foreign intelligence service is doing against us. Yeah. So great examples of that would be Robert Hansen, who was a counterintelligence uh, specialist, uh, special agent with right. the FBI, who was who, who recruited himself. He was a volunteer. He volunteered, uh, right, with uh, with the, the the Soviets and then with the Russians. Right, did yeah. tremendous damage to American intelligence operations. Huge damage, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or yeah. Alder James. Yeah, Alder James. Alder James. CIA. I mean, he's probably responsible for the death of nine of our agents. I mean, real heroes should be heroes to the United States. These yeah. people worked with us to tell us about KGB activities in the United States. I yeah. mean, 
So, so for our audience, maybe I can uh, summarize very quickly a little bit what we're talking about here on the collection operations side. The high-end technical collection capabilities uh, that we spend a lot of money on give us a pretty good sense of what other countries' capabilities are, especially in the way of military, military capabilities. Capability. So we know how many ships and aircraft and things like that that they might have. Human is a, a specialization that might give us the intentions of what a country intends to do with those military capabilities. And that's that's hard to find, and that's why you have to have sources with placement and access, and we have to recruit those people. So, Well said. Okay. <laughs> so speaking of recruitment, uh, Dave, what can you tell us about how the agent recruitment process works? No, again, nothing classified. Well, we have uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures that we were trained to use. We don't want to talk about those, but nope. we can talk a little bit about. Yeah, I mean, the in general terms, I, I think the hardest thing for an intelligence organization to do, like, is is to find those people. Is really to find the, those people who have access that we need, who are somewhat uh, inclined to, in our case, the United States, and that they have something about them personality-wise or something in their life that uh, would make them amenable to a kind of an intelligence officer approach. And so to find those people and then try to develop a strong personal relationship Mm -hmm. with them and maybe trying to figure out who they are as a person, I mean, as their personality, stuff about their family, everything about them, and then trying to craft uh, uh, just a, a pitch or a craft, um, craft a discussion with that person about why they should cooperate with U.S. national security objectives. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, it, the concept is actually quite easy to understand. Yeah, it's like sales. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much, probably very much like sales. But I mean, I think the implementation is, uh, is much more difficult. Sure. And really, f- really finding people with the access who won't like start swearing and cursing at you as an American. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the hard, really the hard thing to do. Yeah. And so that, that gets us into uh, a, another point on this is, and so in your experience, what, what causes a person to decide to become a spy for the United States? And, and I, I ask that because we know that uh, people who are caught as spies in other countries, Iran, China, Russia, other places, uh, North Korea as an example, they, they, along with their families, are tortured and usually killed. Uh, so there's a huge price that they pay if we as case officers fail to keep them protected through training and procedures and things that we would use to protect that operation of that individual. No, that, I think that's right. And I, I mean, by far and away, most of the uh, people who I think decide that they want to cooperate with uh, the United States, it's really a, a belief that what they're doing is helping their country yeah. or helping their helping whatever organization or group they're part of. They really think that by talking to you or me or whoever the case officer may be, that they're passing on uh, important information to our policymakers so the United States can craft the best policy uh, towards that particular you know whether it's a North Korean, Iranian, or whatever, mm-hmm. so that the, their uh, uh, their voice is being heard and that that is being used to help benefit their own people. You know, you can't also uh, 
greed, some form of greed, underlies a lot of the cooperation. Uh, and maybe people are using that uh, fig leaf that they're helping their helping their country by cooperating. But mostly, I, I mean, I've seen people who are very greedy. And they just want the money. Yeah, mercenary. Mer very mercenary. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, John, how can you trust those people? You have a yeah. tough time trusting what they're telling you. Right. Because they have a very much a... a uh, a financial interest. A financial interest <laughs> in keeping the relationship going. So right. they, they may not be telling you the truth. So that's yep. something. But there are other people who are like, you know, they're trying to help maybe a relative who's sick and the medicine that they need is very expensive. So they're yeah. willing, okay, I'll tell you about this, but, you know, I, I need the extra funding to be able to get this medicine for this person. Or yeah. they're thinking longer term if they have relatives that are thinking about going to college yeah. or to higher education. And this is a way that they can help get that person through to onto a better life. Um, you know, I've, personally been a part of a of a case where you know our relationship with the individual helped save that guy's life i mean he was yeah. in horrible health mm -hmm. and uh you know our intervention got him on the on the road to a stronger health and yeah. it, you know became a very it was a fascinating guy but uh, became a very uh, became healthy through our inner direct through, directly through our relationship so mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot so, of different reasons. Yeah, so a lot of different uh, motivating factors for what would cause somebody to to say yes. Uh, and I think, you know, we've talked in the past. I think both of us have had a majority of our experiences have been people who really want to help the people of their country uh, yep. to make their country a better place. Yep, I, I think that's very true. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is David Sauer, and we're discussing intelligence collection operations through human sources, which is usually called HUMINT. Uh, so let's let's get into some more of the technical stuff, if we could, uh, Dave. Uh, when you were running operations, right, what, what kind of oversight was levied on your individual operations? And I ask that because uh, we, we hear all the time about, you know, rogue operations going on in the intelligence yeah. community. That was never my my experience. Uh, I, I think this is where we talk a little bit about oversight for human intelligence operations. Uh, I experienced a lot. What, what kind of things did you go through when you were running operations? Yeah, there there is a, a significant oversight, and, and particularly when you're talking about rogue operations, I think that more is a reference to covert op or like covert action operations, like or Hollywood, or Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, yeah. go back to uh, you know back to the 1960s and Operation Mongoose, which was the effort to destabilize the Cuban yeah. regime and and assassinate Fidel Castro. Mm -hmm. I mean, to think the CIA was in charge of that operation, but to think that that wasn't being run by the White House is right. is ridiculous. Bobby <laughs> Kennedy was directly involved in that, and to think that he wasn't telling his brother about what was <laughs> yeah. taking place is yeah. it stretches uh, the imagination. But you know, on a day to day basis, first of all, the the case officer, I you know. Personally, I always felt I was the person responsible for deciding whether that case was worth pursuing or not, and whether you know it was meeting standards for counterintelligence, whether you know that guy had been doubled back or what have you, or that what we were getting from the from the operation was worth continuing it. Yeah. 
But, you know, beyond me, so I'm a frontline officer doing that, there's managers above it. That's their job. Right. They're reviewing that. They're assessing the operational risk, the risk to uh, the asset, the agent, the risk to our officer going out to meet them, and also the risk to the country. And nobody wants like a Washington Post moment where right. there's a big expose <laughs> about some yeah. operation going bad. Yeah. So that – that's taken place, uh, um, and then back in the field, and then it's taken place back at, or it should be taken place back at a headquarters, where various uh, specialties are looking at the various operation and routinely looking at them. You know, maybe not on a day-to-day basis, but they come back for periodic review mm-hmm. uh, to see if what we're doing makes sense, if it is meeting the requirements or meeting our needs as an organization. And legality or the legal implications, well, first of all, CIA has a a bunch of lawyers and they're extremely talented. And if Charles a lawyer is listening, I think he's the most wonderful guy (laughs) ever. But, and he is a remarkable uh, person, but these guys, uh, they know the law backwards and forwards and they're there to advise advise uh, and making sure that the CIA is is following and, and, and is in keeping with our laws and our values. And mm-hmm. so uh, they fulfill a very important role within the intelligence organizations. Yeah, I found the same thing over on the, on the DOD side uh, for these operations. And the oversight uh, that was levied on me as a case officer was pretty intense. Uh, I mean, there was a uh, documentation of everything that we did yep. uh, when we met with a with an agent. Um, we were uh, required to produce all of our cash down to the penny and have everything accounted for down to the penny at a moment's notice. Yep. Uh, we had overview, you know, oversight from the lawyers to make sure everything we were doing was legal. Uh, it was a it was an intense process. I mean, it was probably eighty percent of my time was spent. Uh, confirming that the operations were in fact safe and secure and uh, worth the time and energy we were expending and the money we were expending to uh, to run those operations. Yeah, that that sounds about right. I mean, it, it, that's why the training is so intense, and mm-hmm. that's why I mean, working in the field is intense too. And if you're think if you're involved in a number of different agents or cases, uh, multiply that by four or five times, right? You're a busy camper. <laughs> That's right. So we, I, I mentioned the money uh, piece to this. Uh, so you finished your career as, a, as part of the senior intelligence service mm-hmm. uh, with CIA. Uh, and senior leaders tend to get stuck in jobs where we're managing resources, man, manpower, budgets, uh, equipment, uh, all that kind of thing. Um, for, so public documents tell us that the U.S. intelligence community is funded at about $70 billion a year, roughly, uh, give or take. Uh, about $20 billion of that is put into what's called the Military Intelligence Program's budget, and it's just for DOD, which leaves about $50 billion for the National Intelligence Programs, or the NIP budget, uh, and that's sometimes referred to as the Black Budget. Uh, CIA gets some of that money. Uh, they, CIA has uh, a lot of people working there, lots of different kinds of operations, so the covert action side is a, is a fairly expensive business. But some portion of that CIA budget goes towards human operations. Uh, and I won't say how much, but it's a much smaller number <laughs> than most people think. Uh, so that said, how impactful do you think, in your in your lengthy career and experience, do you think human operations are in support of American national security objectives? In other words, do you think do you think the American people are getting enough bang for the buck for the money that's spent on human? 
Well, yeah, that's an interesting question, and thanks for the plug about me being in the Senior Intelligence Service. Uh, you actually taught me a lot when you went through all those figures <laughs> because, you know, most of my career I was spent overseas, and which is now uh, a little unusual for somebody to get in the Senior Intelligence Service ranks that's been overseas for so long. But... Uh, you know, you don't you don't need to take it from me, folks. I I think that uh, I had I was in the room in a room when uh, with the then director David Petraeus when he, shortly after he had become director of CIA and before that, of course, he had been the CENTCOM commander. He had been in charge of the surge in Afghanistan and mm-hmm. had been in charge of in Baghdad as well. And so, you know, he was just effusive in the praise uh, for CIA. Here is a guy who had almost unlimited budgetary authority to conduct the war and he comes into CIA and he's like, my God, I mean, this is all the money we have, but then sees the impact that CIA has throughout the bureaucracy, the government and is uh, you know, very effusive in his praise about that. So uh, you know, and also to ask your listeners to consider, you know, how much is uh, a valuable valuable human reporting to to the country. Let's look at another historical example. Oleg Pankovsky was a GRU colonel, a Russian military intelligence colonel, who tr- essentially volunteered to the British, who then shared and led us in the operation. He tried to volunteer to the U.S. It didn't work out. He volunteered to the Brits, and then the Brits and the British SIS shared the information with us. And he was given manuals of Soviet surface-to-surface missile and surface-to-air missile uh, batteries, how they set up things, how they conducted their uh, uh, activities. And so you think about the translation resources that went into trying to disseminate that information. But that information was crucial to uh, our analysts when they were briefing uh, President Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis because that could tell, they could look at how far away or how much the Russians had done in setting up their bases, and they could estimate how much work they had yet to do before they were completely operational. So that told the president how much time he had. Also, uh, you know, I'll turn this around and not in our favor, the United States' favor. Think how much, how valuable the Russian intelligence operation in penetrating the Manhattan Project was for them at that time. They had Operation Enormous is what they called it. They had at least 50 penetrations of the Manhattan Project. And, you know, two senior physicists, two physicists that really were in the plutonium aspect of of the bomb program, which... I mean, save them millions of maybe billions of dollars in research and development in the Soviet Union and allowed them to build an atomic bomb. Yeah. Uh, their design device was almost exactly the same as ours, their initial uh, weapon that they exploded. So they saved themselves oodles of money. I'm sure that, I mean, there are other examples we could go into, uh, but... Uh, that that's a real good one, which shows the well, value. I'll bring one up that uh, that hits close to home uh, here today. Uh, if you think about the the and this has been kind of in the news a lot, 
the human intelligence operations that uh, Ministry of State Security for China has been executing against uh, not only the United States but other countries. Now, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to talk specifics, but I've been retired for a decade, so I can, because <laughs> all this stuff is happening since I've been retired. Uh, but even the FBI is panicked because not only are the Chinese going after national security secrets, but they've also been going after industrial right. uh, secrets, uh, intellectual property. And they've vaulted their economy and their military capabilities ahead by decades from the espionage operations that they've run. So there's a great example right there of why you get so much bang for the buck for the relatively cheap cost of running human intelligence operations. No, that, that, that's a great point, and I thank you for making that point <laughs> and not having me do it. But, the, I mean, for the listeners, the FBI director is out there saying that, yeah. I mean, talking about the threat of Chinese intelligence operations to the United States. And, you know, there's a number of I mean, it could be as simple as I think in Iowa, a couple of uh, uh, Chinese nationals were arrested trying to steal seeds from Monsanto. So yeah. that's that's really impacting our farm yeah. technology. I mean, it's across the board. That's right. And they're trying to use that information to modernize their economy. And supplant the United States as the world's strongest power. Yep. Uh, so, Dave, I want to ask you uh, a challenging question. And this is one of those questions that uh, when I was running those operations and when I was kind of building back up the Navy program and, and bringing young officers in to do it, uh, I would pose this question to them as well. It's also a question I pose to my students uh, at Carleton when I teach the, mm-hmm. the, the overview course on the intelligence community. What do you think are the the moral and ethical ramifications of running these kinds of operations. We talked about the the dangers to recruited assets if, if those operations are blown. Uh, but as a case officer, how do you view your responsibility uh, for the lives of your recruited assets and, and their family members? Well, that's a sacred responsibility. It, it really is. And as I've, I've said earlier, I mean, you, you, those assets, those people who are cooperating with U.S. intelligence are an extremely valuable resource. And and you can't forget at the end of the day, they're human beings. Mm -hmm. And as an officer, you have a sacred duty to try to protect them. And, you know, more on the moral front, I mean, you're, you're fundamentally asking somebody to do something that's probably not in their best interest. Definitely not. No. And so you need to, I mean, for me, it was, I had an instructor who like asked us, he's like, do you think it's morally right for the United States to have an intelligence service right. in order to protect itself? Well, yeah. Well, then we need people to go out and collect that information yep. in order to protect the U.S. And so I, for myself, but was always about, you know, I was trying to serve a higher call. At least I told myself that trying to serve a higher calling and in trying to get people to cooperate with us in order to help protect the United States. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a challenging thing, and I think every one of us who's who's served in this capacity, that's something that we wrestle with all the time. Uh, and it is, uh, frankly, what I encountered when I was going through the training at the farm was that uh, they drive that home from day one, that you have this sacred responsibility to protect the lives of your assets. Yeah, and, and you know, if you've handled or had, you know, a, a few hundred agent meetings, they get kind of, I mean, you know how they go, and they get kind of, I don't know, routine, and uh, also you kind of look at that 
person you're meeting across the way and you may not really like them and you may not you know pretty soon you might just see them as somebody again with their hand out wanting extra money but you gotta kind of snap out of it yeah and you really gotta think through what you're actually doing what they're doing and really focus on your moral obligation to protect that person moral and ethical obligations it's a huge component uh, of this particular type of operation so dave we just have a few minutes left uh what else should uh should our listeners know about the cia uh, maybe focus on the Americans who serve there at CIA. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, so I really have uh, three points I want to raise. First, uh, a legendary CIA officer just died at the end of June. He passed away. I think he had colon cancer. His name was Jack Downing. And uh, you, you know you can read his obituary in the New York Times. He is one of the few uh, operations officers who become the chief in both Moscow, the chief of station in Moscow and in Beijing, one of the few to do that. And he really is, at least for me, the the epitome of the warrior poet. Here's a guy who uh, he served in Vietnam in a Marine rifle company, served a tour, at least a tour there, and then went right into CIA. And he, uh, you know, really had that ethos of service over self and so he was just a fabulous officer um and i had a a chance to meet him when i was a young trainee and and i have a a former manager who's a good friend of his and you know their their idea of a good time was to to try to stump each other on understanding chinese idioms when (laughs) or to study tang dynasty poetry so some really great things and the other thing john was really to to talk you know we already mentioned how much writing that takes place and in, in doing cia work and that's i think surprises people um our analytical community those guys are just unbelievably smart people mm-hmm. and really dedicated and, and so they're one of the great treasures of the u.s government the cia cia analytical community and mm-hmm. my hat's off to them and then just finally i mean the the young men and women that I, I had a chance to work with and to lead in my last few assignments, I just want to assure the people that those people are amazing. They are dedicated public servants who are out there uh, putting themselves on the line. And you know what? They they don't look like you and my, me. They represent all of America. Right. There are, a lot of them are first-generation or second-generation immigrants. Mm-hmm. They have the, that language capability that and cultural understanding that is very hard to develop. And, and they, I mean, just amazing education backgrounds, uh, just a, a really great group, and uh, I, I was fortunate to be a part of them. Well, I appreciate those comments. Uh, David, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Uh, this has been, a, an, I think, an enlightening experience, both for me and hopefully for our audience as well, talking about this, uh, this high-end operations, human intelligence operations, uh, separating a little bit of fact from fiction for us, uh, and sort of explaining a little bit more about the oversight that, uh, that we go through uh, for running these, uh, these high-end human intelligence operations uh, and the critical role that oversight plays. Uh, anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I just wanted to thank you for uh, uh, the opportunity to appear on your show and uh, really compliment you for the for the public service you're doing in increasing awareness about the national security issues 
important national security issues that are facing the nation today. So thank you. Yep, you bet, David. Uh, so, folks, that closes out this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again at 9 a.m. again next Wednesday morning, and I hope you join us again. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.